Last Sunday afternoon, news started spreading across Twitter, around the internet, that the controversial Atlanta pastor, Eddie Long, had died, age 63. Yes, I'm going to start this morning with Eddie Long. Now, what made news of his death so shocking and mysterious was the secrecy that had been kept around his recent weight loss. People had long speculated that Mr. Long was in poor health over the last year or so the church. Refused to directly address the issues, Mr. Long grew more seclusive, became more deflective. On August 12th this past year, sensing the need to make a public comment, Eddie Long posted a video on his Facebook page explaining that his recent weight loss was the result of a holistic diet that consisted mostly of eating raw vegetables. He explained that he was kicking the, quote, slave diet of fast food to try to be more healthy, which is why he had lost so much weight. Regrettably, his physical decline not only continued to worsen, but grew harder to ignore, prompting him to issue a public statement on September 6th. I'll read you a little snippet of it. He said, quote, I am recovering from a health challenge that I trust God to deliver me from. At this time, my family and I are requesting that you respect our privacy. I truly appreciate your prayers and support for me, my loved ones, and my beloved New Birth Church family. Now, the rumor is that Eddie Long ultimately died of a very aggressive form of cancer. But his death came as a shock to many because of what he then said from the pulpit on October 9th of this past year. During the service, which I have the the video linked on C316.tv, Eddie Long proceeded to tell his congregation the following, quote, I've been on a journey, and I've just been recalibrating myself. Like I said, I had some health issues, but God has healed me. The manifestation is coming through, and we stand in that. Although many have wondered why there was so much secrecy surrounding his illness, why he wouldn't just be open, forthcoming, with a congregation that deeply loved their pastor. People wondered, if you're going through this illness, why not make it public so that people can see your faith in the midst of such trial? Why keep it a secret? Why not just be honest? And yet, personally, I'm not surprised in the slightest that no one would admit what was really going on. You see, Eddie Long held to a theological position that we call the prosperity gospel. It's also known as health and wealth. For years, Mr. Long taught his people that poverty and illness only manifested in a person's life from a lack of faith. You see, God's will, he would say, was that you be healthy and wealthy, that you be rich which not only explains why his extravagant lifestyle was accepted by the congregation, but why that lifestyle was actually necessary. I mean, think about it. If the pastor wasn't rich, how in the world could you expect yourself to become rich? If the pastor wasn't good enough to receive these type of blessings, drive the the Bentley, then how could you ever expect yourself to achieve such a standing before God? You see, this is why news of his illness, his sickness, his cancer, was hushed-hushed. You see, it contradicted his theology. In one sermon that Eddie Long gave, he went so far as to say the following, quote, The doctor can x-ray you and say, you got cancer. And then you go home and you let God see you. Does Christ have cancer? If Christ don't, then you don't have cancer. All you need to do is get a picture of what he looks like because if you can see him, you become like him. I guess in the end, and with all things considered, you could definitely say by his own words that Eddie Long was not Christ-like. This morning, I want to tell you a very honest but hard truth as it pertains to following Jesus. 
Because what I'm about to say doesn't tickle the ears. It's not likely you're going to hear this statement presented in most churches. It doesn't exactly sell well. The reason the prosperity gospel that men like Eddie Long and other men like Joel Osteen teach, the reason this doctrine is toxic is that it runs counter to the truth of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, this notion is completely unbiblical. You see, the hard reality about the Bible, about what the Bible presents, is that it gives us example after example after example of people who are clearly right in the center of God's will, people who are right in the center of God's plan for their life, and yet from a very practical, temporal standpoint, their life stinks that it's tough. The Bible tells us of people who there is no doubt love God, that there is no doubt are following God, are even being used by God, people who are pleasing to God, people who we have no question are right in the middle of God's will for their lives, and yet whose lives we see being filled with nothing but difficulties, with pain, with suffering, that their lives are trying. Friend, God's will doesn't mean your life is easy. There's more examples that communicate it's more difficult. Consider one example of many. Jesus. Being in the center of God's will meant what for his life? That he was beaten, rejected, and crucified. And that was God's will. Friend, the truth is that God's will for your life, it might include health, but it might just as easily include sickness or a chronic pain. Sure, God's will might include success. You might find yourself financially prosperous as a result of God's plan for your life. But if we're being honest, your life might also be characterized by business failures, by poverty. Neither mean you are or aren't in God's will. Sure, it's true that God's ultimate will is to provide you eternal life. But never forget, his will at some point requires every one of us face a certain death. That was the flaw in Eddie Long's theology. And it's why this prosperity gospel, this heresy, leaves people disillusioned. There's a whole community of Christians whose pastor has died now questioning everything the man said, questioning everything he had communicated, everything they had placed their hope in. I want you to know this morning, following God is hard, and the road he might lead you down may very well be painful. And it is true that that is a tough pill to swallow But the truth is that difficulties, trials, storms, and disappointments can be God's will for your life. And yet, while being in the center of God's will can lead to either a wonderful life or a terribly difficult experience or something in between, we're going to see this morning something I find fascinating. Because whether we realize it or not, there is always a divine purpose behind the will of God. Whether it be a good season or a negative season, God always has a plan for every season. Now, where we're at in Genesis chapter 21, um, it's very straightforward. God had promised a son to Abraham and Sarah. They had waited for years for this son to come. They had reached an age where the coming of that son looked impossible. They had taken matters into their own hands, adopted a cultural practice, recruited Hagar, a servant girl, to be a surrogate, and they had Ishmael. But God stepped in and said, no, 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 that's not the son. I've promised you and Sarah a child through Sarah. And while it looks that there's no natural way that can happen, I'm going to accomplish this work supernaturally. And there's a lot of spiritual implications uh, illustrated by the entire story. I encourage you to listen to last Sunday. Well, upon Isaac's birth, there's some conflict now between young Isaac 
and Ishmael. Some of the attention Ishmael had enjoyed now gets diverted to this son, this son born under miraculous circumstances to the point it doesn't look like anything's gonna work within the house. So Abraham is forced to cast Sarah, uh, Hagar and Ishmael out of his home. Now, look at verse 14 of Genesis 21. So Abraham... He's really wrestling about what to do. God says, listen to your wife, Sarah. Hagar, Ishmael need to, need to be cast away. So he, he rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water. And putting it on her shoulder, he gave it, he gave it and the boy to Hagar, sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And this, the water in the skin, we're told, was used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat across from him about a distance, about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. Honestly, it's hard to paint a more depressing, heart-wrenching situation. Forced to leave the safety of Abraham's home for, as we discussed, much larger reasons than themselves, Hagar and Ishmael, they're sent out of Abraham's tent with only a ration of bread and water. And since the wilderness of Beersheba is mainly desert, for context, the last few verses of the chapter will explain how Beersheba got its name, it doesn't take long for these rations to run out leaving both Hagar and her son Ishmael in a terrible situation. Things seem so bleak that Hagar has actually resigned herself to the reality that both she and her son are going to die. So, unable to watch Ishmael's inevitable suffering, we're told that Hagar places him under a bush and she sits opposite him. In her desperation, waiting to die, Hagar begins to lift up her voice. She begins to weep. Now, don't forget that this is not the first time that Hagar has found herself alone in a dicey situation. If if you recall, back in Genesis 16, Sarah had given Hagar to Abraham as a surrogate. She conceived as was the plan Sarah soured then on the whole situation. Through shade, her direction, Hagar chooses to flee. She runs. She bolts. Her intention is to make her way to Egypt. Now, amazingly, as we read in Genesis 16, as Hagar's pondering her next steps, what to do, Moses tells us, our author, how the Lord appeared to Hagar by a well, instructed her to return back, and to submit herself to Sarah, but not before calming her fears by giving her some wonderful promises, mainly promises about the future of her unborn son. In response to the entire situation, we're told that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also seen him who sees me? Now, my point in bringing up, recounting a little bit of history is to emphasize a little bit more of where Hagar is in this moment. She's lifting up her voice. She's crying out. She's in a point of desperation. But Hagar knew the Lord. She had had a personal encounter with the Lord that led to a personal relationship with the God of Abraham. I mean, Hagar, if you really think about it, unique to so many others in Scripture, is one of the few that had a dialogue with Jesus face to face. What makes this important is that it indicates Hagar was a believer. I like Hagar a lot. I can't wait to meet Hagar in heaven because Hagar is really what I would consider, what we would consider today to be a Christian. She's not a pagan. She's not godless. She knows the God of Abraham, the true and the living God. She's spoken to him. She's related to him. She loves him. No doubt she's crying out to him. As a desperate and helpless Hagar lifts up her voice as she's weeping on account of everything that has just transpired, I can imagine that her cries are directed towards heaven. In this moment of fear, in the moment of vulnerability, 
She's making a personal appeal to whom? To the God who sees, the God she knows. Now, please keep in mind, Hagar, she has done nothing wrong at all. Hagar has committed no crime. She's committed no sin. As a matter of fact, for the last 13 years, Hagar has actually been walking in obedience to God's command to submit herself under Sarah's authority, as God had instructed, as God's word had relayed. No doubt, that couldn't have been an easy task. I'm sure it came with some difficulties. Hagar is a believer, but she's a victim. She has been caught up in a situation that she didn't cause, a situation that she has no control over. Not only has Sarah finally gotten her revenge, but imagine the emotions when it's Abraham who casts both she and Ishmael away. I'm sure as this is happening, Hagar is flabbergasted. She's overwhelmed with disbelief. Ishmael's your son. You're flesh and blood. How in the world could this godly man do such a thing? And to make matters worse, how does Abraham justify the decision to heed Sarah's voice? We looked at it last week. Well, Abraham had been torn up what to do. Sarah's like, Hagar and Ishmael need to go. And Abraham doesn't want to send them away because he loves his son. He's torn. He's in between. He doesn't know. But what does he say? He then approaches Hagar and confirms that God spoke to him and said, indeed, he should listen to his wife and both she and this child should be cast away. Like Hagar's in this situation. Like not only has she been betrayed by Sarah, someone she's, she's spent her life serving, Abraham, someone she admires, the same man in whom God she's encountered for herself, but now it's that God that has sent her into the wilderness to die. That God was the one who said, cast her away. I've been betrayed, literally, Hagar is thinking, by everyone. Everyone I care for, everyone I respect, everyone I love, everyone I depend on. It's no surprise that in this moment, she's there in the wilderness, lifting up her voice and weeping. Abraham, he acted out of obedience to God, meaning the entire dire situation that she's facing is exactly where God's will would have them. Note this, God had sanctioned the entire situation that's facing Hagar and Ishmael. I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine that as Hagar sits there under that desert sun, weeping, she's crying out, as you and I would, why? Why, God? What did I do wrong? I mean, for the last 13 years, I've been obedient. I've submitted myself under the hand of Sarah. It didn't win me any points, but I've been listening to you. I've been following you. I've been faithful. And what about those promises that you gave me so many years ago? Those promises about my son. Are you, are you, are you going to turn off them as well? Are you going to let me down? Are you going to allow my son to die? Have you been lying, God? Like Hagar's situation, it's hopeless. She's in the desert without water. It's only a matter of time until she and Ishmael would, would be dead. At this point, nothing could be done. All of her energies had been exhausted. Hagar is literally at the end of her rope. She's beyond despair. She's beyond frustration. Hagar has reached the point where she can literally go no farther, nor can she do anything. Hagar knew God. But in this time, I'm sure that her situation flooded her heart with, with doubt, with questions. Hagar is afraid. Had God really led them into the wilderness to perish? Was God going to fail them in their time when they needed God the most? Was God going to renege on his promise? I mean, hadn't God made an assurance to even Abraham that he would take care of Ishmael because he was his seed? At this point of complete despondency, all Hagar can do 
is cry, to weep, and to make an appeal. Have you ever been in this type of a situation? A situation that challenges what you know about God, what you know about his promises. Like Hagar, maybe you face a situation, a difficult one, a trying one, one that you've done nothing to bring upon yourself. Have you ever been in a situation where you were simply caught up in events that were beyond your direct control? Have you ever reached the point where you knew you were in the center of God's will, but that will was terrible and difficult? Have you reached the point where all you can do is cry? Cry out to God and weep before the Lord? Well, we continue, verse 17, that God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness. He became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, little geography that's northwestern Saudi Arabia, along the eastern shore of the Red Sea. We're told that his mother took for him a wife from the land of Egypt. Now, it really shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that know the Lord that in this very place, when hope is fading, when Hagar is desperately lifting her voice to the Lord, that God called to her out of heaven. As it pertains to these type of tough situations that God, God's will might lead you into, the first point that can be made, and it is a, an important point, is the truth that God, if you're in these type of situations, no, God hears your voice. Please know that. God hears the fervent prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman. That you have free access. That in your cries, in your tears, God is listening. The God of the universe is listening. But more than that, will respond in your time of need, when the time is right. But you know, it's also important to point out how it was that God responded to Hagar. Because he responds to us in the same way. You see, God, we're told, responded how? He responded to her cries through his word. We're told very simply, God called to Hagar and said, it was his word. I hope you know this morning that what you have in your hand, whether it's a physical book or a digital copy, it's more than just words. It's more than just a story. Your Bible, it's why we call it the written what? Word of God. Yes, in times past, God's word had to go forth to individuals audibly. There wasn't the scriptures with Hagar. And if there were, she didn't have it out in the wilderness. So God had to speak audibly. But you have everything God wants to say to you right in your hand, right now. God's word. You see, God communicates himself the same way he always has. Yes, he spoke it audibly in times past. Today it's just written down for us. Which means we can carry it with us. We can access it frequently. God's word is always accessible. Beyond that, notice what God's word communicated. We see first God said, what ails you, Hagar? Now, the sad truth is that the English translation of this fails to effectively represent what God is actually saying. Just kind of reading through this, what ails you, Hagar? It kind of indicates or at least leaves the impression that God is kind of playing the fool. Like, oh, I hear your voice, Hagar. I see your tears. Hey, what's wrong? Like somehow God didn't know what was really going on in Hagar's life. 
The flip side is you could be reading through this and, and, and maybe even see God as being kind of passive aggressive. Like, really, is it, is it that bad? Like, what really ails you? Neither of which is the truth. And the translation kind of doesn't paint a correct picture. In the original language, the only word you have here is Hagar. What ails you, Hagar? It's just one word, Hagar. You see, in connecting her ailment with her name, the translators are doing something important for us. You see, they're indicating that God was doing more than just identifying Hagar. Instead, God was saying her name in a tone that acknowledged how the situation was affecting her. Like, it's the written word. So we, we don't... We, we have a hard time understanding how God said her name. And, and you can say a name in a lot of different ways. The way I articulate my son's name, one word, I can make it mean a lot of things. Quincy. 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 Same word. Designates different interactions, different moments. Here's Hagar. And God says her name. But the translators want us to know that he's saying her name in such a way that is identifying with the situation she's in. In a sense, you could read it, Hagar, Hagar. Imagine that moment. Back in Hagar's first interactions with God in Genesis 16, the first word that God says to her then is the same word he says now. That first word, Hagar. She had heard her name roll off the tongue of God. Imagine that moment as she's crying, as she's weeping. She doesn't see anyone. She just hears a voice from heaven. Her name. Oh, she recognized who was speaking. Aside from making a personal connection by acknowledging what she's personally going through, also notice what God's word communicates. God instructs her to what? Fear not. Like in saying this, God is doing something important. God is seeking in this moment. He identifies with what she's going through. He, he falls back on a personal relationship. That's why he uses her name. Hey, God. Fear not. You see, God's wanting to turn Hagar's attention off of her present situation and onto the one in control of her present situation. It's almost as though in saying, Hagar, fear not, that God is telling her, Hagar, if you hear me, if you, if you understand, I know what you're going through. I know the situation you're in. I know that while things might appear Hopeless, if you know that I'm aware, do you really have anything to fear? Have I ever given you, Hagar, a reason to question my love or to question my promises? Like, also notice that God then continues by explaining why she didn't need to fear. He says, I've heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now, while on the surface, the implication is that Hagar was unaware that Ishmael was also praying. The purpose of this statement, I think, runs much deeper and has larger implications. The whole scene has focused on whom? It's focused on Hagar. Hagar and her anguish, it's been, it's been the center. The camera has been focused on her. And yet off screen, under that shrub, what has Ishmael been doing? He's still in the set. He's off. We can't see him. Now, don't forget Ishmael by this point. He's a teenager. He's 13, 14 years old. He's fully aware what's happening here. He's not an idiot. Ishmael knows that his situation is desperate, if not hopeless. Beyond this, born of the flesh, the son of the flesh, born on account of Abraham's unbelief, it is still a truth that Ishmael possessed an incredible heritage. I think Hagar gets left out of the story too much. I think Ishmael does as well. Ishmael, keep in mind, 
was circumcised the eighth day. He listened to Abraham, his father, recount story after story of his journey of faith. I'm sure growing up, Ishmael heard Abraham recount that moment when the God of glory appeared to him when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans and set him on this incredible, this incredible walk that this incredible relationship had began. I'm sure Abe relayed to his son all of the promises that God had made, that Ishmael had, had even heard him relay the honest truth of the mistake he had made with Hagar, that there was still a son, a promised son, on the horizon through which a savior for our sins would be, would be yielded. Though it's not specifically mentioned, because Hagar grew up in the tents of his dad, he'd been there that moment when the Lord came over for supper. He'd seen the situation. Beyond that, he had seen firsthand God righteously destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with, with fire. Ishmael had personally witnessed God's amazing grace demonstrated time and time again when his father failed. Those failures were not hidden from Ishmael. And yet Ishmael also noticed that God's favor, that God's blessings never wavered. Ishmael saw the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. He had seen this old woman conceive and bear a son. He had witnessed this supernatural birth of Isaac. No doubt, the bedtime stories for young Ishmael had always centered Hagar recounting that, that day that she had also encountered the God who sees. See, my point is, while the case is closed that Ishmael knew of God, there's no doubt. Growing up in Abraham's tents, there's no way you couldn't have known of God. But it's not until this very passage that we have any evidence of Ishmael knowing God. He knew of God, but it's in this moment that we're given evidence that he now knows God. So what's Ishmael been doing under the shrub? Two things. I can imagine he's been listening to the cries of his mother. The anguish of his mother. How that tore him inside that he couldn't do anything as well to save them. He hears her cries, her tears for help. But as he's listening, what then happens? Well, the passage indicates that Ishmael himself begins to pray. Now, we have no idea what Ishmael's praying, nor do we have any idea how long he's been praying for, but how interesting that God responded to Hagar's cries when? Look at the text. Does the text ever tell us that God heard the cries of Hagar and Cain? What spawned God's reaction to Hagar? We're told very clearly that God heard the voice of the lad and spoke to Hagar. Only to then calm Hagar's fears with what words? I've heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now why of all things would the knowledge that Ishmael has been praying serve to calm Hagar's fear? You see, I believe it's in this moment that the ultimate reason for their present difficulties came into view for Hagar. That Hagar in this moment, it, it begins to grow clearer why it was the reason that Abraham had cast them out. You see, it was essential they be cast out for God's will, God's plans, God's purposes in their lives to be fulfilled. Things begin to come into view for Hagar. See, I'm personally convinced that God had led them into this desperate situation for two very important and interrelated reasons, which become, in this statement, I've heard the voice of the lad clear to Hagar. First, God had placed them into such a desperate situation so that Ishmael could witness firsthand his mother's relationship with God in action. Ishmael knew they had been given a raw deal. 
He knew their situation didn't look promising. And yet, upon hearing his mother cry out to the living God, weeping before the Lord, something in his heart began to stir. What he heard coming from his mom, it wasn't a bedtime story. It was real. It was genuine. It was raw. His mom was making a true and honest appeal to a God that not only had she told him so much about, but that she clearly knew personally. Which leads us to the second reason and ultimate purpose behind everything that's happened to this point. You see, in response to witnessing Hagar's genuine exchange with the Lord, Ishmael makes a decision that would change his life forever. That he chooses to enter into a personal relationship with that God for himself. It's interesting. Following the entire story, what do we see? We're told very clearly when we're given this little bit of biographical information about Ishmael, what are we told? From this situation, so God was with the lad. Not something stated beforehand. The implication is that a change had occurred in Ishmael through this event. No longer was the Lord the God of his father, Abraham. No longer was it the God of Hagar, his mother. From this point moving forward, the Lord was now also the God of Ishmael, the God that Ishmael would serve. You see, in a profound way, this story, why it's important, why it's significant, why it's included, is that it gives us Ishmael's conversion. The moment that Ishmael made a decision to follow the God of Abraham for himself. On a side note, Ishmael gets a bad rap ultimately because in the 600s, Muhammad, without any proof or evidence of anything, decides that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, that was the son of promise. Ishmael did not start the religion of Islam. Please know that. It's not his fault. He's long gone when Muhammad decides to pick him out and say, you know what? The Bible has it wrong. The Torah has it wrong. Yes, Muhammad says that it's Ishmael that was the ultimate promise, the son of promise, that in which we've all descended. But that's not true. That wasn't Ishmael. I think we will meet Ishmael in heaven. I think it explains to us why God instructs Hagar to arise, lift up the lad, to hold him with your hand. Before then, look at it, the Lord again reiterates his promise to make him a great nation. Think of it just in a real logical standpoint. Okay, God had made a promise to Ishmael, a promise to Hagar about Ishmael. Way back when, before he was even born, God had promised her what? That unborn child, I'm going to make into a great nation. I've got a plan, I've got a purpose for his life. Now in the wilderness, she's doubting all these things. But how would God What parameters, what characteristics, what would have needed to have happened for God to have fulfilled his promises? I think there's two things. One, it's only logical that Ishmael at some point would have had to separate from Isaac. Isaac was, he was the birthright. He was the son of promise. He would be the dominant male in that home. And if Ishmael had stayed, there's no way he becomes his own man. Ishmael had to separate from Isaac for God's promises to be fulfilled. But secondly, Ishmael, for God to accomplish this work in his life, would have to know God for himself. That it couldn't be a relationship with God in an extension of his dad or his mom. So they had to be cast out. They had to go. You see, in the whole process, God's revealing to Hagar the purpose behind their plight. In order for God to accomplish his will in Ishmael's life, everything that had been happening, everything that had happened was necessary. Yeah, it was tough, but it was essential. Being cast out was the only way Ishmael could become his own man. And this desperate situation they found themselves in was the way that God chose to foster an environment whereby Ishmael could witness his mother's genuine relationship with God being manifested in a powerful way so that he would call upon that God for himself. It's in Hagar's trial that her faith shone brightly and Ishmael saw 
how real and genuine it was. Like to, to this point about this being Ishmael's conversion, the next time we see him is in Genesis 25, verses 8 and 9. And we read that Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age. An old man full of years was gathered to his people and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in a cave of Mikvah. Now, well, it would have been understandable for Ishmael to have harbored or held some type of a grudge against his father, against his brother, over the way that he and his mom had been treated. It seems as though Ishmael had come to understand and ultimately accept the fact that all of these things that were happening were part of a much larger plan that God had for his life. That this difficult season had a very real point. Think about it this way. If that didn't happen, how in the world do we have this story? Like how in the world would Isaac have known what had happened in that wilderness? The only way he could have known for it to be passed on is for Ishmael to have shared it with his brother. It's okay, bro. I serve the same God you do. These things were necessary. I don't hold dad in contempt. And as sons, they buried and honored the man. Well, after revealing to Hagar his ultimate purpose behind their unfortunate events, God still has one more powerful lesson that he needed to communicate. We read that after these things, what happens? Look at the text. We're told God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well of water. Not only had God worked through the situation to accomplish his will, but this well, it would quench their thirst. Now, keep in mind the Hebrew language doesn't imply that God placed a well of water along Hagar's path that previously wasn't there. That in some way, Hagar was unable to see the well because, well, the well didn't exist until God put it there. That's not what the passage is saying happened. Instead, the miracle seems to be that Hagar was unable to see a well right in front of her until God opened her eyes. Like the irony is that she's dying of thirst when a well was within reach. The remedy to her affliction was right in front of her, but she couldn't see it. Like, I don't think it's an accident that in Hagar's first interactions with the Lord, we're told that she's found by what? She's found by a well. And then gives the Lord the name, you are the God who sees. Only for now in this second interaction with God, for what ha to happen? The Lord gives her sight so that she could see a well right before her. I don't think any of that's an accident. Like there's no doubt in my mind that employing these two things, the ability to see and a well, that God is trying to remind Hagar of an important reality she had forgotten. You see, Hagar had grown afraid. Why? She had lost sight of the fact the Lord was the God who sees. It's why he opens her eyes, reminding her, I see. Like, though she didn't know why, any of these things were happening in her life. There was no reason for her to be afraid. And yet what is so profound about this exchange, and the point we should pay careful attention to, is that God wasn't providing a solution to Hagar's problem. That's not what's happening. On the contrary, God in this exchange is wanting Hagar to see something important. And that is that the solution had always been right in front of her. If God had made a well appear, the point would be that God's providing a solution. But that's not what happened. God took what was there and just allowed her to see it anew. The solution, that well, was always there. Once again, let me go back to, to Genesis 16. We're told, Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God, of see, God who sees. For she said, and this is important, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Ber Leroy, which means 
the well of the living one, seeing me, Hagar. Hagar had been overtaken with both fear and doubt for a simple reason. She had allowed her circumstances to take her eyes off the Lord. While the well was right in front of her, Hagar allowed her situation to blind her from seeing the ultimate solution was always there. Once again, I find this so relatable. Isn't it true that it's so easy to become so consumed with our struggle that we fail to see our Savior? It's so easy to get consumed by what's happening around me that I take my eyes off the remedy. Friend, when God leads you down a difficult road, when you inevitably find yourself in a desert that causes your heart to flood with fear and doubt, like Hagar, can I exhort you this morning to first cry out to the Lord? That's okay. It's okay like Hagar to be real, to be raw, to be honest. It's okay to weep and to question even doubt, the truth, you may never know who's listening to your cries and the impact that that's making on their faith. And here's why it's okay to cry out to God in such a place. You not only serve a God who sees, but a God who speaks. While his will may lead you into situations that are difficult, that are trying, just like Hagar, circumstances, if you've ever been in them, that will bring you to a breaking point. It's God's word, friend, that encourages you to remember that he has a reason behind whatever it is you're facing. And while it's true, he might not reveal the purpose of these things like he does for Hagar, at least not until heaven anyway. There is one thing that God will always, in responding to your cries, do in your life. His word will always help you open your eyes to see. To see that there is a well whose spring runs eternal. A well right in front of you that never ceases to supply everything that you need. Friend, this morning, may I exhort you to get your eyes off of your circumstances so that you can see the solution that's always been there, that you can see Jesus. That all things work for the good. That's his promise to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That Jesus has not left us to face trial and struggle and difficulty alone, that he's given us his spirit, a helper. You will sink if you take your eyes off of Jesus, which reminds me, of a story in the New Testament that plays right off of this point, right? Oh, Peter, the disciples, they're in a boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And why are they in the boat? Huh, we're told that Jesus told them to get in the boat and to go to the other side. Which means that those disciples, when they, in the middle of that sea, face a great tempest, that's rocking the boat. The waves are crashing, the wind's howling. They're reaching the point of desperation. In that moment, they are in the center of God's will. God's word has led them to that very place. And we're told that Jesus was watching, that he saw. And what does he do? We're told in Matthew chapter 14, that as they're rowing, as they're trying, as they're striving, as they're failing, as they're sinking, Jesus comes walking by. <laughs> it, kind of the text implies he's walking like, like he's just going to pass them. I told you to go to the other side. I'd meet you there. So here I am. You guys going to make it? And they start crying out like it's a ghost, which I don't blame them because how many people have you seen walk on water, Right? But then it begins to dawn on them. Wait a second, that's not a ghost. That's Jesus. And Peter does something crazy. Like it's, it's, it's one thing to see Jesus walking on the water. It's another thing, and it's what you gotta love about Peter. For you to think in that moment, huh, if he's walking on the water, I wonder if I can do that. 
Like, who in their right mind thinks that way? <laughs> Jesus is walking on the water, and you're thinking, maybe I can do that. So what does he do? He cries out. I want to walk on the water. What does Jesus say? Come on. And to his credit, there's only been two people who've walked on water. Jesus and Peter. Because we're told he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on water. Looking at Jesus. But then what does the text tell us? He, took his, he starts to see the waves. He starts to see the wind. He becomes now more cognitive of everything going on around him. He starts to freak out. The lightning and the thunder and the, and the rain. He's seeing Jesus. He's walking on water, but he, he begins to, to look around him. He begins to see his circumstance, his situation. And in his mind, he's thinking, what am I doing out of the boat? You idiot. And we're told he begins to sink. And then he prays the shortest prayer ever recorded. Lord, save me. It wasn't real theological. It didn't have big words. You know, all the things Christians say have to be included in your prayer for God to really hear it. But it was genuine, right? He was in a place of desperation. I'm going to drown. I'm going to sink. I am not going to make it if you don't save me. And what does Jesus do? He saves him. He saves him. He doesn't let him drown. Friend, God's, God's will, it can be terrible. You can be right where God wants you to be, and life can be terrible and hard and difficult. But he has not led you into that storm for it to destroy you. Instead, it's the storms that get us to look to Jesus. But wait a second. I don't have to die of thirst. There's a well right in front of me that I can drink, that I can thrive That's glorious. For full disclosure, as I was approaching this particular chapter in the story, my great challenge was like, man, I don't know if I have enough for a Bible study because I don't want to get to chapter 22 because then that's Abraham and Isaac. And man, I don't know if I can get through this. Like, this is going to be the, a short Bible study, 25, 30 minutes. And then as I started working through it, man, if you've ever been in the desert, This is a word that's important. Isn't Hagar so relatable? And yet, if you're drowning, put your eyes back to Jesus. So, Father.